Let's pray. Mighty God, we know there is no place that we can go, but to the eternal one who gives us words of eternal life. And we ask now that as we continue to worship, that, that our ears would be open to hear your word, that we'd have eyes to see the glory of your grace through the redeeming work of your Son, and, and what that means for us um, thousands of years from the time of your grace-filled promise to Abraham as covenant, covenant children and recipients of divine grace through the finished work of the promised one, true Israel, the true vine, our Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. All visitors, we want to welcome you this morning. We're delighted to have you with us. Um, you might want to stay after service and fellowship with us just across the hall here. You don't have to scoot out. Um, we'd love to get to know you. you. You're going to want to meet some of these fine people. Um, they're grace recipients, as are you, I hope, this morning. Amen? Um, we are currently... Um, Studying through the book of Romans, we've been at it over, for over a year now. We find ourselves in the 11th chapter, right in the middle of the 11th chapter. So if you would, um, open to Romans 11. We're going to look this morning at verses 11 to 24. And before I read those verses, I want to read Paul's overarching theme of this epistle. That's way back in chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. Here then Paul continues. We pick up where we left off last time, and that is verse 11, and he asks, he says, So I ask, did they stumble, they, Israel? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then... As I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the whole... If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Well, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This ends the reading of God's word. I want you to imagine yourselves this morning. Imagine yourself, take yourself back to the first century church in Rome. You are a Gentile convert. You come from pagan ancestry. You're within this congregation in Rome made up of mostly Gentiles along with some believing Jews. Are you there? Are you there? You're there. That's where you are. That's where we are. Paul is writing in the context where Gentile Christians are the majority party in this church at Rome. And in all probability, they're thinking that God redeeming them is the greatest work within his plan of redemption. No doubt. That is, enfolding Gentiles and making them, as 1 Peter says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into this marvelous light. That's how God sees Gentiles. Those are words for Israel. Now, it's certainly hard to argue with the magnitude of that divine work. Amen? Yet imagine, imagine Israel. Imagine the Israelites, if they were told four or five hundred years before Messiah arrived, that soon after Messiah's arrival, the majority of those who would believe in Messiah would be Gentiles and not Jews. You think they would have believed it? I don't think so. The Jewish community of the first century actually became the original persecuting company against not only believing Jews, but also believing Gentiles. Now, as a result, there were some ill feelings within the church between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Okay, do you get the picture? You see this? With that in mind, Paul corrects some apparent misunderstandings on part of the Gentile believers. And he teaches them a few things throughout the course of this section of the epistle. Okay, you're going to have to stay with me just like you did last week. Okay? 
This is a lot of ground to cover, but it's so clear. And this benefits us so greatly. First is that God's plan of redeeming sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, is solely because of grace and grace alone. Amen? Amen. This we know. And then in the following verses, he unfolds for us how the failure of Israel benefits Gentiles. Also, how a full inclusion of Jews also blesses Gentiles. And he also spells out what our attitude is Gentile Christians ought to be towards Jewish people. Applicable to this day? You better believe it. Don't spiritualize this text. And then it's followed by a discourse of God's work of enfolding Gentiles into Christ. That is how he enfolded Gentiles into Christ. And that is, he did so not apart from ethnic Israel. Now, Paul concluded the last section, verses 1 through 10, for which we looked at last time, by focusing on the hard truth of God's hardening unbelieving Israel. Who hardened them? God did. According to his sovereign purpose, he hardened them in their unbelief. So Israel never obtained what they earnestly sought to establish, that being their own righteousness. Who can obtain their own righteousness? Nobody. They refused to submit to Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, who is the righteousness of God. That's why, unless you're in Christ by faith, you can't be saved. Now, Earlier, Paul used the metaphor of Jews stumbling over Messiah. If you look back at chapter 9 and verse 32, he says, They have stumbled, 32b, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, verse 33, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here in chapter 11, Paul asked the question, Okay, yeah, they stumbled. But did they stumble in order that they might fall? That's the question. Now, you may have been expecting him up to this point to answer, well, yes, they stumbled, and oh boy, did they stumble over the stumbling stone, and they did fall, and they fell finally and forever. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You're the Gentile sitting in the church at Rome. That's you right now. God had a gracious purpose, even in the sin and unbelief of Israel. But Paul doesn't stop there. Okay? Although Messiah came to Israel, and his own received him not... But the Gentiles did. Is it over for them? Not according to this chapter, it's not. And I'm not dispensational. Israel's sin is described as bringing blessing to the Gentiles. In other words, so to speak, Israel's loss is the Gentiles' gain. Okay? But, he says, has their stumbling led to their final fall? Now, we all stumbled, right? I was going for a walk the other day and stumbled, right? 
And most times when you stumble, you, you, you're able to recover. My foot caught a piece of uneven concrete, and I stumbled and caught myself and then tried to look cool because I was embarrassed in case somebody saw me. Right? That happened right before I saw Mark and Ruthann in their car when I was going for a walk. So you, you can stumble and recover, and, and some, as a, ro- as a result of stumbling, actually fall. Some fall and get up again, dust themselves off and keep walking. Some stumble and fall perhaps down the side of a mountain or perhaps into a pit, unable to recover, unable to get up. Here, Paul asks, was God's ultimate purpose in hardening Israel as he did because of their unbelief, was it in order to fall once and for all and forever, that is a fall beyond recovery for ethnic Jews? And Paul answers yet another one of his rhetorical questions with an emphatic no. God forbid, absolutely not. Proceeding to emphasize that the hardening of Israel, verse 7, was indeed by the hand of God and is a hardening that no doubt serves the purpose of revealing a mystery. First and foremost, it reveals a mystery. Now, what's a mystery? Well, a mystery in the Bible is something that was once, once concealed in the past, made Obvious, made evident, revealed in like the New Testament. It was veiled in the Old Testament, made manifest fully in the New. Now this mystery that that Paul is talking about wasn't totally concealed in the Old Testament. The fact that Gentiles would be recipients of grace, it was veiled. But remember, the promise God gave to Abraham is that which nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed? All nations of the earth. The mystery revealed through Israel's stumbling is that salvation would come to the Gentiles. Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It was there in shadow and type, amen, but not fully revealed. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here you sit in the church of Rome as a Gentile convert rejoicing over this truth, But there's a warning not to be puffed up in this truth, as we'll see. Jewish and Gentile Christians are united as equal heirs in Christ, all part of God's family. Even Israel's failure as a nation serves God's providence here for his New Testament church. And make no mistake, beloved, the church, Gentiles, enfolded into this divine plan was not God's plan B. Okay, with this we, do we know this? This is not God's plan B. This is all according to his divine plan. With that in mind, verse 12. Now, if their 
Israel's. Trespass means riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, Israel's, full inclusion mean? So Paul tells us, Israel's stumbling was the pretext, it was the preface, it was the foreword to full gospel manifestation. Full gospel fulfillment. Israel's transgression, their rejection, explains the means to God's end in enfolding people like you and me into the one true people of God. This explains John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Many people take John 3.16 and, and think that it means that Jesus atoned for the sins of every single person of the world without exception. Not so. There's no one in hell that was atoned for. God so loved the world without distinction that he gave his son. That was the plan. It wasn't just Israel. It was people from Gentile pagan nations as well. Are you with me? God so loved the world without distinction he gave his son. Israel's stumbling was was far-reaching, but it wasn't final. It was appalling, but it wasn't absolute. It was stunning, but it's not as stunning as, as the glory that will be displayed as God restores them as a people in believing in the one true Messiah. Are you with me? So if, if God's glory was revealed through a remnant, which we studied last time, a remnant kept by God for himself, verse 4 and 5. Remember that? And then Paul used himself as an excuse. He goes, let me tell you, God's not done. I'm a Jew. I'm as Jewish as you get. And God saved my wretched soul. As a matter of fact, I persecuted his church. And then he uses the illustration of, of Elijah in the Old Testament when he thought he was the only one who served God. God says, oh no, Elijah. I got seven more that I've kept for myself. Who's in charge of salvation? is how does this apply to you and me it reveals to you the glory and the magnificence and the power of god in saving sinners and how he does it are you with me (laughs) this is stunning we ought never to come to any text of scripture and say well that really didn't apply to my life it better apply to your life if you're saved it does apply to your life we rejoice in this so if if israel's failure serve to increase riches for the world of Gentiles being enfolded. In other words, if God's goodness was revealed to people outside the covenant, how much more of a blessing is going to abound through his grace in the restoration of unbelieving Jews? That's what's in view. Blessings that will abound. Again, he is not referring here to spiritual Israel. The context of Romans 11, some people try to spiritualize this text away. It's referring to ethnic Israel. If it's a great blessing to the Gentiles when Israel rejected Messiah, how much greater of a blessing will it be as God uses them, which we'll see how, that those who in mass rejected him will in mass accept him and believe in him. Now, I happen to take the position and stand in agreement with many others who conclude that Paul is alluding here to a widespread conversion among Jewish people at some point before the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Paul tells us that a remnant of Jewish people have been turning to Christ from the first century to this very day. We looked at that last time. Whereas Israel's a people have remained hardened. And Paul seems to indicate here through this passage that this hardening is not permanent. It's not a permanent condition. If that be true, then this is a New Testament prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And we're going to see it unfold this morning. Verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews, what? Jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul, at length, throughout this epistle, has been explaining to us how the old covenant does relate to the new. There's a one people of God there always has been, spiritually speaking. Speaking now to Gentiles within this local assembly, he says, you need to understand that what I am doing as an apostle to the Gentiles, I'm carrying out what God has called me to do. But even more than that, not only is his plan being fulfilled through me, I have a very conscious awareness, not only of my call, but also that part of what I am doing is to make Israel, ethnic Israel, my kinsmen, jealous. That's what he's doing. So in the present context, envy has a very positive effect, doesn't it? In hope that some of them will be be saved. He says, I magnify my ministry. Notice Paul's not magnifying himself. He said, I know God's called me to be an apostle of the Gentiles, but as I go from town to town, the first place I go is straight to the synagogue. This is the only way Jew or Gentiles will be saved. So he he stresses his passion again for his own kinsmen, his own lineage. And he wants to move these Jews from rage and anger and hostility to softened conformity, surrender, and acceptance of their Messiah, who is your Messiah, Gentile church. Through the jealousy of them witnessing God's redemptive mercy and his redemptive blessings that are being experienced through the Gentiles. Okay, that's Paul's motive here. You know, Jewish people ought to be jealous of Gentile believers. Think about this. We're recipients of divine grace. Covenant recipients of of, of redemption and grace who are able now, by grace, to make a clear, confident distinction between law and grace. They can't. They can't understand grace unless you understand Christ. We are able to understand. See, we understand that the law teaches us, amen? But it no longer in Christ can torture us. The law teaches, it no longer tortures. God's law leads us on course as guided by the Holy Spirit, but no longer is a curse. Are you with me? A people who live according to grace ought to make those who live according to law jealous. Who wants to live under the law? The law kills. This is Paul's motive. He wants them to be jealous for all that the Gentiles have received in the Messiah they rejected. 
point of application here. The sweetness of the gospel, the sweetness of gospel life, the sweetness of gospel living in and through your lives ought to make the unbelieving world jealous to some degree. The love that God's people have for one another, it does make the world jealous. Jesus, after all, said they will know you by the love you have one for another. Watching us love, watching us serve one another, watching us tolerate one another. (laughs) Right? We're called to tolerate one another. Because I probably irritate some of you, and you all probably maybe irritate me. Probably not, but you never know. We tolerate one another. That stirs up jealousy within the world. Oh, how they love one another. Families living under the banner of Christ, living spirit-led lives, are puzzling to the unbelieving world. Did you know that? They watch you go to church. They watch you get in the car by faith, as I said earlier this morning. You get in that van. You get in that car by faith. Kids are screaming, hitting on each other. You're going by faith. And they stand in their window, and they scratch their head, and they wonder why. But there's something there. There's a hope that they do not have. Loving and enfolding people into the body of Christ that no one else wants creates a sense of jealousy. Christians dealing with life's troubles, their losses, their crosses, in a spirit-led manner, a steadfastness, of hope or with hope causes or makes the restless and the anxious uncertain who live uncertain lives jealous, or it should. If we don't make the world jealous, then we're doing something wrong. And if we don't make the world jealous to some degree, we probably probably become like them. So when the world observes the church standing for something other than soundbite philosophy recited and regurgitated from CNN or MSNBC or wherever or from whomever, they become jealous because you have something that is not rote. It's something of substance. It's something of depth. So Paul wants to make them jealous. That somehow I may make my fellow Jews jealous so that some of them may be saved. Verse 14. Then verse 15, notice. For if their rejection, Israel, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the, what? Dead. Dead. Life from the dead is an impossibility for man. It's one thing to see a dead corpse and be freaked out, and know that there's no hope at all. It's another thing altogether to be given a vision like Ezekiel and see a valley full of dry, sun-scorched bones and say, God says, speak to breath. Let me ask you, son of man, is there any life here? Can these be brought up again? What did Ezekiel answer? The best answer that we could ever have. God, only you know that. Right? Look at this. Do we have that text? So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, 
a rattling of the bones coming together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, tendons and flesh had come upon them, skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their fate, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are clean cut off. This is a human impossibility. Jesus said in Matthew 19, all things are possible with God. What does he say? If their rejection means reconciliation of the world, verse 15, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? It's this kind of resurrection. Now, many skillful commentators believe that verse 15 is the initiation of God's climactic end of salvation history. Developed in more detail towards the end of the chapter, next time when we get to verse 26, it says, in this way all Israel will be saved. (coughs) Referred to by some as, quote, the beginning of the closing act of the eschatological drama. Douglas Moo, in his superb Commentary on Romans states the following, quote, Therefore, as Israel's trespass, verses 11 and 12, and rejection, verse 15, trigger the stage in salvation history in which Paul and we are located, a stage in which God is specifically blessing Gentiles. So Israel's fullness, verse 12, and acceptance, verse 15, will trigger the climactic end of salvation history, end quote. That is, beloved, a massive influx of Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ immediately before his return. In other words, when Jews are are converted in mass on a large scale at the end of the age, you know the end truly is at hand. Now, others disagree, and they say this. Just as in every age, some Israelites are hardened. This we know. It must also be true that in every age, some are saved. Oh, I agree with that 100%. Okay? There's no doubt about that. But when you get down to verse 25, which we'll look at next time, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. See, Jews periodically coming to faith throughout church history is no mystery. This raising from the dead spiritually is a mystery. Are you with me? Have I lost anyone yet? Say no, please. This is heavy, but we have to go through this. We'll we'll visit that subject next time, okay? All Israel will be saved. Now, The overarching theme of this chapter is that God is forever faithful to create a people in Christ, both Jew and Gentile alike, as inheritors of the Abrahamic promise. Okay, that's the overarching theme. So, when we read a text like this, 
that indicates that there'll be a large influx of ethnic Jews coming to faith right before Christ returns, this we read, we do not have to press into this text a kind of secret rapture that takes Gentiles away so that the Jews in Israel can rebuild the temple and all come to faith and belief and, and, and then this great worldwide cataclysmic type of tribulation causes all these Jews to believe. You don't have to press that into this text. May we not? It does tell us, I believe it's clear, that prior to the end, many, many Jews are going to come to faith. I mean, I don't know what you do with it. It's there. So Paul expresses Israel's rejection of Messiah is not only benefiting the Gentile world, but also Israel's acceptance into that redeemed community by way of resurrection life, like Israel or uh, Ezekiel 37, spiritual resurrection reminds us of this as he continues. There's a holy root. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? The promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the holy dough. That's the holy consecrated root. Everything that comes out of there are branches that are just as holy as the root. Notice. Verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole what? The whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In other words, if a little leaven used to make the bread rise as sacred, so is the whole loaf. Okay? If the root is sacred, if the root is consecrated, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so is the dough, that is their offspring, ethnic Israel. It's also holy. Okay, are you with me? Okay, notice. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, okay, and here now, he's referring to disobedient apostate Jews, and you, Gentile believers, a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards those branches. Okay? In other words, olive trees were essential to Israel's economy. What they produce? Olive oil. <laughs> olive trees produced olive oil, which was a precious commodity to Israel. Olive trees live long. They're deep-rooted. They're robust. But if you, he says, notice, are arrogant towards the branches, just remember, all you are, Gentiles, is a wild olive shoot, and olive shoots are good for nothing. Nothing. Remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, salvation is of the Jews. Without them, you have no inheritance, Gentiles. Verse 19, then I know you'll say to me, Paul says, but the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul replies, verse 20, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You want to spiritualize that away? Are you serious? 
he's warning Gentiles against something specific here. And that is spiritual pride and a haughty demeanor. For anyone thinking, hey, the Jews were broken off. We're grafted in. We're superior. We accept the promises of God. We're the covenant kids of God now. And we boast in that. He says, be careful. Be very careful. You can't boast in that way. In fact, verse 21, if he didn't spare the natural branches, ethnic Israel, you better walk cautiously lest he not spare you either since they have greater claim than you do. Okay? In other words, don't forget where you came from and don't forget the abounding, abundant grace that enfolded you into true Israel. Who's true Israel? Jesus. He said, nevertheless, don't have an anti-Semitic attitude. Now, unfortunately, there is a vein of hostility that runs against ethnic Jews even from within the church of Jesus Christ. Very unfortunate. It's true. I've witnessed over this year, over the years, I've witnessed that. And I said, why is it? In most of the hostility, most of the anti-Semitic attitude from within the church usually comes from those who buy into everything that the great reformers said hook, line, and sinker. I love the reformers. Luther, the Calvins, the Knoxes. But if you read their writings, some of what they say was very offensive towards ethnic Jews. I love the Reformers. Most books in my library are from the Reformers. But many Reformed people, unfortunately, in the main, typically the immature ones, receive all of their doctrinal distinctives from 16th century reformers, including the attitude that they conveyed toward ethnic Jews. Unfortunately. May we not be like that, amen? Many Christians will sit in church all their lives and they'll say, those foolish, idiotic Jews. Now, if you're reformed in your, in your doctrine, you believe in the sovereignty of God, Amen? And you know, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, that it's God who hardened them in the first place. Amen? And that God has a plan and he's not done yet. Amen? So you can't say, those stupid Jews, we're the true covenant kids of God. He says, don't go there. Don't go there. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That is metaphorical language that Jesus uses in John 15. Unfruitful branches, what does he do? Breaks them off, carries them away, and they're thrown into the fire. If you're not in Christ, you're not in the vine. There's no fruit unless you're in the root. Note then, verse 22, the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So he says, on those who have fallen into apostasy, severity. To you Gentiles, kindness, provided you don't become apostate. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. The Gentiles mustn't repeat the mistake that Israel made becoming arrogant, presuming upon God's grace over and over and over again. 
point of application. In addition to showing us the beauty of grace, Paul's goal in this text is to humble the believer, to humble anyone who begins to take grace for granted. May we never take grace for granted. Beware, friends, of the believer who runs around any time their character or said belief is called into question and all they do is spout off, hey man, it's all grace, man, it's all grace. Beware. Paul is exposing the danger of becoming proud of boasting in grace or presuming upon grace. We're not called to boast in grace, we're called to boast in Christ who's the source of grace. He said, look, you've seen his love. You've seen his justice. And understanding both Gentiles in the church of Rome ought to make you tremble with awe. Right? Because if he came into the confessing community of Israel and cut off those who merely profess to have faith, don't think he won't for a minute for a moment, think twice about coming into the professing new covenant community and cutting off those who merely profess to be in Christ. That's the warning. I see it as clear as day. So we see here that is the way Paul communicates, he's not talking about a God who's politically correct, is he? If you watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, when they talk about God, they talk about a relativistic God, and he's the God of universalism. He's the God of Christianity. He's the God of the Muslims. It's, it's, he's the hub for which all spokes meet. No, he's not. No, he's not. That's not the God Paul talks about. He is holy and just and mighty and awesome. And when you understand his severity along with his love, then you can understand the cross. That's the only way you can understand the cross and comprehend the depth of his love who sent his son to receive extreme injustice so that those who believe can be recipients of extreme justification. He's severe and he's loving. Paul says, don't forget it. This is the one and only God who loved enough to become involved with our condition. Flesh. He condescended to become like this to live life in your place, to lay his life down in your place, to rise again. And he's the only way to the Father. That's how much he loves. That's the severity of God. So don't presume, he says, by merely professing faith, because Israel merely professed faith. They didn't have faith. They didn't believe, and they were cut off. Verse 23. And even if they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature wild olive in a wild olive tree, that's you Gentile, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, okay, now don't miss this, 
how much more will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, if that root is capable of of supporting and sustaining wild olive branches like you and me, how much more will the inclusion of those which are natural be that much more easily grafted in? That's the picture. This is what we hope for. I hope to see all kinds of Jewish people come to faith. There's a Jewish school right there. When you drive by, you can pray that they'll see this cross in this building and hopefully become jealous. Only God can do that. Because to go share the gospel of Jesus Christ today, go on CNN or MSNBC, God forbid, or Fox or whatever, and and, and say that the only way an ethnic Jew can be saved is to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then you will be coined as being anti-Semitic. But Paul says, look, to be truly anti-Semitic is to not share the gospel truth in love. It's to forsake from ever praying for ethnic Jews. That's what it really is to be anti-Semitic. And to stick your chest out and go, we're the true covenant kids. The Jewish community is incredibly concerned about any of theirs converting to Christ because it really means separation, doesn't it? Especially the religious Jews. You'd be cut off from your family. So what do we see in these verses? Quite simply, beloved, that God has designed the salvation of all people, that is, true Israel, and you're included in true Israel, in such a way that the salvation of Jews and Gentiles is kind of reciprocal as I close up. Originally, God blessed ethnic Israel. That divine line of Abraham, promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through a man would come a couple sons and 12 sons and 12 tribes and a nation, and through that nation would come the Messiah, and through the Messiah would come their rejection of him and inclusion of you Gentiles, and Gentiles being used to, to, to be shown as receiving the grace of God and the kindness of God stirs up jealousy within them, and then God in turn saves some of them, and then at some particular time, a large inclusion of an unbelieving group of people, all for the praise and honor and glory of God, because it's all by his power. They serve us, we serve them, that's part of God's divine plan. We stand therefore in awe. We respond, as we see in verse 33 to close. Notice. We'll look at this next time. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Everything, beloved, that happens in redemptive history is working out the infinitely wise and perfect plan of God. God, and you're part of it today. You realize that? You're part of it. Now, what does this do for us? As recipients of grace who have people we love who hate Christ. You know what it does? It gives us even a greater sense of hope. If God has caused obstinate, hard-headed Jews to come to faith, like Paul, 
And if he's going to do some divine work to bring a whole group of them to faith, are we hopeless with these that we love who are so hard-hearted? No, may we continue to pray fervently. May we continue to pray fervently, preach passionately, and live graciously. God's plan is being worked out. May we never presume upon his grace, but may we rest in it and walk in it because of Christ, the vine. You now are the branches. Amen? Let's walk and, and, and let's trust. And if you came in here this morning as an unbeliever, usually like Paul, I'll plead with you to come to Christ. But as I said on Easter, I'm not begging this morning. Time's too short. Okay? If you're not a true believer in Jesus Christ, the command is, by the authority of Scripture, you need to repent of your unbelief. If you believe that God is a hub and many spokes lead to God, whatever you believe, you need to repent of that and you need to come to Christ, surrendering your life because you are a sinner like this guy up here who needs to be saved and there's no way to be saved but by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed before the foundation of the earth to save Jews and Gentiles alike making one true covenant people. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, as, as much deep truth as this text conveys, we depend on you, Holy Spirit, and we ask of you to, to bless your people with a deeper, richer understanding of redeeming love of the price that was paid. That from the very beginning, before you created anything, prior to the beginnings of anything, you determined to send your Son to shed His blood, Christ Jesus our Savior, crucified before the foundation of the earth, to save sinners like us. Lord, we pray to see our neighbors down the street, these Jewish people come to faith. We pray, Lord, that this promise we see in scripture does indeed include Lord a mass influx of ethnic Jewish unbelievers into the faith we pray that we see it tonight we pray that we'll see it this week and we pray for those hard headed friends and loved ones of ours who seem calcified who seem to have fallen so far who have stumbled so hard that they seem to have fallen beyond reach Lord, lift them up like the dry bones of Ezekiel. Breathe life into them. Cause them to believe and help us to testify of the grace, the mercy, and love of God through Christ your Son, our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.